We'll take our text this morning from the book of Ephesians. We'll look at chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 10 through 14. Ephesians 6, 10 through 14. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And then the first part of verse 14 says, Stand therefore, as you... Look at this portion of Scripture. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and apparently he is making them aware of the fact that we are in a warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. And he gives them a list of armor to put on. There's actually six pieces of armor that he mentions here. But it's interesting that he only mentions one position that we're to take at least in this portion of Scripture, and that is to stand. He mentions the word stand three times and withstand one time in four verses. I just did a quick Google search, just one, and it said that the reference to stand or uh, the word to stand is mentioned 277 times in the Word of God. Well, if the Lord says something that many times, we want to pay attention. It's important to stand. Stand means to remain stationary, to tolerate without flinching, to endure or undergo successfully, to take up or maintain a specified position. Somebody, some expert said that the average person will spend Ten years standing in line. Not sure where they come up with these statistics. I would suggest if you shopped at Costco on the weekends, you could probably about double that time. But on average, I guess we spend about ten years standing in line. We've heard it said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. That's true. Very true. God's Word tells us that in James 1.8. He says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Some people think that if they can just take a neutral position, that somehow they'll be okay, but it doesn't work, especially in the Gospel. I was thinking of a story of a man who was alive during the Civil War, and he decided he didn't want to fight for the North or the South. So he thought, you know, he came up with a plan. He would wear the gray trousers of a Union soldier, and he put on the red jacket of a Confederate soldier. The problem was when he left his house, he got shot at from both sides. So we must stand for something to stand or to try to remain neutral by default. We take a position. But this morning, let's consider what standing looks like from a biblical perspective. We know in order to stand, for anything to stand, it requires a good foundation to begin with. Brother Leroy did a wonderful job of explaining that foundation about three weeks ago, but it's good to be reminded 
what that foundation is. If you turn to the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 47 through 49, Christ gave a parable here and he was explaining what that foundation was. It says, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not, it is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Christ himself let us know he is that foundation. The word of God is that one and only true foundation. He tells us how to get on that foundation again through faith and obedience to Christ. Verse 47, he that comes to me and hears my words and obeys them. This is the one who begins on that solid foundation. So we see it's through faith and obedience. We recognize two types of people in this parable. He that heareth his sayings and doeth them, and he that heareth and doeth them not. We also see that these two men face the same set of circumstances. It says, when the floods arose and the streams beat vehemently upon both houses, you notice it says when, not if, but when the floods will come. But we see the greatest difference or the contrast is between the two foundations. The house on the rock is that man that hears the words of Christ and obeys them. He plants his feet on that rock through faith and obedience. And I love what it says there in verse 48. It could not shake it. If you're on that rock, Christ Jesus, no matter what the enemy throws at you, he can't shake you off. If you're planted on that rock, Christ Jesus... 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. So God knows. He knows those that are following in faith and obedience. Those that have planted their feet and anchored their feet on that rock through faith and obedience. This morning we'll consider three aspects of standing. We'll look at what it means to stand still to stand fast and to stand up or to stand out or stand apart. Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14 says, Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. You know, sometimes when God tells us to stand still, that's probably the most difficult thing for some to do because it requires faith and trust and obedience. And most of all, it requires patience. But you know, when God tells us to stand still, the worst thing we can do is just to plow straight ahead. God says stand still for a reason. The word of God is fraught with examples of those who got ahead of the Lord. 
You know, I think of one of the most tragic accounts that we read about is the account of King Saul. You read about him in the book of 1 Samuel. And, you know, King Saul, he had such great potential. If you read his story there, the way he started out, it says that the people wanted a king. That wasn't God's perfect plan by any means, but because of their constant complaining and begging and pleading, he allowed him to have a king, but he picked a special person to be the first king of Israel. He chose Saul, and even from a human perspective, from an external perspective, he was a natural leader. says he was impressive physically, head and shoulders above all the men in Israel. If you were going to pick a leader on looks alone, you would have chosen Saul, but uh, what's even more important is God had changed him from the inside out. Samuel 10.6 says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he turned him into another man. The Bible says that the Lord gave Saul another heart and he prophesied among the people. And even when the prophet Samuel came out to present him to the people, he said, See ye whom the Lord hath chosen, there is none like him among all people. Something so special about Saul. And we know he started out so humble and meek. But something went terribly wrong in Saul's life. As you continue to read chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, Saul had been reigning for about two years, and he faced a battle. It says that the Philistines had gathered themselves to fight together against Israel, and you read that Saul's men were scattered, and they ran and hid themselves in caves and thickets and in the rocks. It seemed like everything was going wrong for King Saul. You ever have days like that? Well, certainly, probably we all do. But you know, in the midst of that, Saul had received some very specific instructions from the Lord. Verse 8, he was told to wait seven days. In other words, to stand still. Don't do anything for seven days until Samuel the prophet could come and offer sacrifices unto the Lord. And then God would tell Saul what he needed to do. Well, after those seven days passed, Saul became impatient. He became hasty. He said after Samuel didn't show up at that appointed time, he became so impatient that he forced himself to take matters into his own hands. And he offered that sacrifice, and that was in direct, direct disobedience to what God had instructed him to do. And that wasn't his place to offer those sacrifices. It really was an act of rebellion against the Lord. But you know, as soon as he did that, no sooner did he do that, then who should show up? First Samuel 13, verse 10, it says, And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And you see the excuses just start to flow out of Saul. Well, you took too long. You didn't come when you were supposed to be here. Uh, the people were scattered, and I hadn't made supplication on the Lord. And these are the words that I think are so sobering, really. He says, I forced myself. Therefore, to offer a burnt offering. In other words, God took too long. The situation was spinning out of control. It was too desperate. I had to take matters into my own hands. I had to do something. 
Sounds awful when Saul said it. I wonder how it says the sounds of the Lord when we may say something like that or act in that way, but we see the results were devastating for King Saul. You read in verses 13 and 14, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Thou hast not kept which the Lord commanded thee. How sad. Saul's impatience, his impetuousness led to his downfall. You know, when God says to wait, that's exactly what he wants us to do. When the Lord says, wait, we want to wait. We see positive results from obeying that commandment again in Exodus 14. Uh, we read that account. The children of Israel have been brought out of Egyptian bondage after 400 years of slavery, and God had delivered them with a mighty hand and led them out uh, through the series of plagues, and, and it was miraculous. And he, they found themselves in this place that seemed like an impossible situation. There, the Red Sea was before them. The wilderness was on each side. The enemy was behind them. You know, from a human perspective, you'd say they were an impossible situation. No doubt the enemy may have thought, I've got them just where I want them. I have them hemmed in. But you know what? God had them exactly where he wanted them. God led them to that place, and he did it for a reason. I think about that verse that says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Maybe you'll find yourself in a difficult situation. Maybe you should stop to consider maybe God brought you there for a reason. But he gave him a commandment. He said, wait, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. And you know, by waiting, God provided a way when there was no way at all. You know, by taking up the fight ourselves, we can actually prolong the battle. Imagine if they would have come up with some idea on their own. Some of them probably would have died in the wilderness. Some would have been drowned in the Red Sea. No doubt some of them would have been recaptured by the enemy and taken captive. But by waiting on the Lord, God took out the entire Egyptian army in one single day, did for them what they could never, ever do for themselves. Verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And one single day, God took care of the problem by just waiting on the Lord. You know, the same God they serve is the same God we serve today. The same power to deliver and to bring about that miraculous delivery, that's the same God we serve today. If God is saying, wait, wait. God will provide a way out. The Word of God instructs us also to stand fast. That means a firm, fixed, and settled position. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know, Paul here was addressing the Galatians. This was a group of Christians who had been wonderfully saved through faith in Christ, they had come to know and appreciate the merits of the Lord's shed blood, and through faith they were saved and delivered from their sins. 
The same way we're all delivered from our sins, but for some reason, many of them begin to feel like they needed to place themselves back under the Old Testament law. They were trying to receive salvation through faith, yet somehow they were still trying to earn it through their works. And so Paul was reminding them here, uh, don't be entangled with that old bondage of the old law. It wasn't the law or the observance of the law that saved you. It was faith in Christ. They were saved through faith in Christ. Paul addressed the same issue in Romans. He says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sent Jesus to die in the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. He told them, if you're justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Christ has become of no effect. You know, if Christ is of no effect, you're in bondage. So he was reminding him, it wasn't your works. It wasn't your own righteousness that saved you. It was faith and faith alone in Christ. You know, we're not saved by doing good works. We do good works because we're saved. That's a result of salvation, not a means to it. But they somehow got it all mixed up, and they were going back into this Old Testament way of thinking. And it says the Jews, somebody noted, had 613 commandments to keep under the law of Moses to be saved. And they continued to add to those laws. Paul said that's slavery, that's bondage. You know, Jesus made it real simple. He says there's only two commandments that you need to keep. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two commandments alone hang all the law and prophets. Made it real simple, but some for some reason they felt like they had to place this yoke upon themselves and upon others. They were exacting a, a standard from others that they could never meet themselves. And Paul said it was bondage. Don't be entangled again with that yoke of bondage. You know, he could have just as easily been saying, don't be entangled by that old yoke of sin. When Christ saves us and sets us free, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. All the old things are passed away. The Lord has no intentions of us going back to that old life of sin. The Lord doesn't want us to return to Egypt. When he sets us free, he expects us to stand fast in that liberty that we find in Christ. We want to stand up for the Lord. Psalm 1, again, our scripture reading, it tells us there are three things that the godly won't do. Sometimes it's the things we won't do rather than what we do do that seem to get the most notice. But it says here that he won't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He won't stand in the way of sinners and he won't sit in the seat of the scornful. So the godly won't stand or walk or stand or sit with the ungodly. You know, by refusing to stand with wickedness, automatically by standing for the right thing, that will automatically cause us at times to stand out or to stand apart. Exodus 23, 2 says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. I think it was Brother Jack Robbins that used to say, you know, any old dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live one to swim upstream. Well, it takes some determination to stand for the Lord. We're also told that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Christ's own words in John sixteen thirty three says, In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. 
It's an inescapable fact. Those who live godly lives will face opposition. But you know, it's also an inescapable fact that the wicked will also face difficulties and trials and tribulations. The difference is the one who stands for Christ, the one who builds his house on that solid rock, the one who remains faithful unto the Lord unto the end. He says, the one that endures to the end shall be saved. The one who refuses Christ, the one who refuses to submit and yield his life to the Lord and to the Word of God, his foundation will be swept away. His house will be destroyed, and it says, and great will be the fall of it. So we want to build and stay on that solid foundation You know, we can learn some valuable lessons about standing. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, we read the account of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we read and we learn some very valuable lessons that we can take away from their example. As you read that account, the first thing you realize is that by refusing to bow down, you're going to stand out. You know, the opposite of Bowing down is standing up. Same thing if the opposite of standing up is bowing down. But we have a choice. But we know as the decree went out and Nebuchadnezzar said, if you hear the music and when you fall and worship the image that I've created, it'll be well for you. But if you don't, you'll be destroyed and cast into that fiery furnace. You know, the pressure was on. But as that entire nation fell, there were three men that remained standing. So by refusing to bow down, you're going to automatically stand up. Standing for Christ may invoke reproach from others. We need to understand that. It would be wonderful to think that, you know, if we're true to our convictions and if we stand up for the right thing and we are people of integrity, that people will automatically respect that. Even though maybe they don't agree with it, they'll respect it. They'll leave us alone. That's not always the case. Certainly wasn't the case for these three men, but they stood for Christ. It says certain Chaldeans that were standing by came near and they accused the Jews and they brought this evil report to King Nebuchadnezzar. Standing for Christ will not be a one-time occurrence. They stood for Christ. They stood for the Lord. Well, It came to the attention of the king. Of course, it says he was enraged and furious, so he called him before him and he Basically said, I'll give you one more chance. If you hear the music and you fall down and you worship this image, well, but if not, the same day, the same hour, you're going to be thrown into that furnace. And who shall save you out of my hand? You know, Satan won't stop after the first time. He'll give you many opportunities to compromise. But I love their response. They said, oh, king, we're not even careful to answer you in this matter. We don't need a second to reconsider this. Says our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. If he chooses to deliver us, he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your idol. They realize that even if it meant giving their lives, the Lord, they would be victorious even in death. So they refused to bow. Well, that leads to the next point. Sometimes taking a stand for the Lord will cause things to get a whole lot hotter. Nebuchadnezzar was enraged, so he commanded him, heat that furnace seven times hotter than it was meant to be heated. We know sometimes the Lord delivers from the furnace. Sometimes Christ chooses to deliver us in the furnace. 
Lord could have easily prevented them from going in that furnace, but he had other plans. It says that they went in bound, hand and foot, but they came out loosed. The only thing that got burned up in that fire was the restraints that had held them back. You know, sometimes Christ, the Lord, may allow us to go through some difficult things, some fiery trials, but he has a purpose in that. Sometimes it's to burn away those things that hold us back, those things that might hinder us from drawing close to the Lord. Sometimes he uses the furnace of affliction to try us like gold, tried in the fire. The most important lesson of all we can see if standing for quiet Christ requires going through the fire, Christ will be in the fire with us. It says that Nebuchadnezzar, as he looked into that flame, he was astonished. He saw four men in there walking around, loosed. So we threw three men in. What's going on? There's four. But he said he'd recognize that fourth man was like unto the Son of God. And that could only have been Jesus Christ himself there in that fire with them. You know, if you're in the midst of a difficult situation, if you're serving the Lord, if you're standing still and standing firm, if you're steadfast, Christ will be in that fire with you. We see, too, that those who stand for Christ always come out on top. Nebuchadnezzar, when he took him out of that fire, he said, Bless the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who changed the king's word. He made a new decree. He said, let anyone in the land who says anything bad about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let them be cut to pieces, and their houses will become a dunghill. Nebuchadnezzar was a little extreme, I think, but it made an impression on him. He said, there's no God like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 30, it says, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We know not every account ends like that. There are those who aren't delivered. We know there are many, even in the world today, who are giving their lives for their testimony and for their faith in Christ. But the Lord lets us know that even in death, if we'll stand for Christ, even in death, the Christian will be victorious. Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. Think about the account of Stephen there as they were taking his life because he told them the truth. It said as uh, they were stoning him there, it said he looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God. It said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of his father. Some commentators say it was because Jesus was giving him a standing ovation. But he refused to bow. But even in death, we know he was victorious. He had an abundant entrance into heaven. It pays to stand for Christ. Again, in closing, we consider that contrast between the righteous and the wicked in Psalm 1. The righteous is the one who refuses to stand with sinners. He says, he'll be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. He'll bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaf, leaf won't wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Compare that to the wicked. Those who don't stand for anything, it says they won't stand in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous. You know, the only way to stand before Christ 
in that day is to stand for Him in this day. We can only learn to stand by first learning to kneel. The Bible says that one day every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord. Some have chosen to do that now. Some have chosen to do that in this lifetime. And for them, those that have yielded their lives to Christ, those that have stood for the Lord, in that day they'll be able to stand with Christ in the judgment. But those who've refused, those who continue to reject Christ, one day when they're forced to bow, it's not going to be to recognize Christ as Lord and Savior. It's going to be to recognize Him as that righteous judge. He won't be that Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He'll be that Lion of the tribe of Judah, and He'll come to judge them. And for their refusal, they'll be cast out into everlasting darkness. The way of the, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. But we need to learn to stand by first kneeling and bowing before the Lord, by repenting and humbling ourselves before the Lord. You know, our standing in eternity will be determined by the stand we choose to take in this life. I think of the words to Brother Ted's song, there is no chance in eternity to change your destiny. Where do you stand with the Lord today? You know, the fact is, every single one of us here, everyone from the youngest to the oldest, one day we're going to face eternity. We are. It's just a fact. The question is, where will you spend it? If you don't know, you can have that settled in your heart this morning. Maybe you're unsure about your standing with the Lord, or you know you're not standing in that place where Christ would have you to be this morning. You can make your peace with the Lord. Just repent of your sins. Confess your sins to the Lord. Come and ask the Lord to help you, to give you the strength to stand. And when that day comes, we will be able to stand. And that day of judgment will stand in the congregation of the righteous. What a hope we have. God can give you that same assurance in your heart this morning. Let's sing 571. These altars are open.